Let's pray. Father, I'm asking that you would help us to tremble before your word as we come here. There is so much truth for us to feast on here. And so I'm praying that you would help us to do that, O Lord, that you'd give us soft and humble hearts, God, to receive from you what you've said, that you give us sharp minds to be able to think carefully and clearly. Help us, help us, Lord, right now to prepare our minds for action, that this whole room would be actively engaged in receiving your word here together, that our hearts, Father, would be fully engaged, believing what you have said. And Lord, I'm praying that the result of this would be lives that please you. God, we're asking for you to be at work here, so please do that. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please, please go ahead and have a seat. At the end of Peter's second letter, he writes about the letters of Paul. This is actually one of the passages we're going to be considering at the men's Bible study tonight. And he talks about Paul's letters, and this is 2 Peter 3.16. He says, as he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. And if, when I get to meet Peter in heaven, I want to say, Peter, that's a little bit like the, the pot calling the kettle black, don't you think? Because I don't know about you, but I have found that Peter is, as Jordan used early, earlier, the word he used is very dense. And by dense, we don't mean that he's not thinking clearly. We mean the opposite. He, his, he's operating at a level that is incredible. And his, his letter here is just packed so full and understanding it appropriately and, and, and actually really getting into what he's saying take, takes a fair bit of work on our part. I'm just letting you know this at the beginning of that I've, I've really struggled this week. The sermon passage for this week was supposed to be verses 17 to 21 of, of 1 Peter chapter 1. It's all one thought. It's one sentence, again, in the original language, 17 to 21, one sentence. And it was Thursday that I realized this is going to be two sermons, not one. And then it was this morning that we realized it actually might be three. And so just even an hour ago, we're making big changes to the structure of the sermon because we really want to make sure that we, we don't waste any opportunity here to really get this. And, and I think we were initially were going to look at verses 17 and 18 here, and it's just too much. It's too much in one sitting to, to fully be able to digest. And, and so we're just looking at verse 17 here, which I think we're going to find is enough. Now, here's one of the reasons why, why there's so much here is that 
in these verses, Peter is bringing up ideas that, that can be quite challenging to us. And so if, these, if this was maybe just some review, we could, we could go through it at a good pace. But there's some really big ideas we really want to grapple with and wrestle with here. So that's, that's what's behind the study guide. Okay? Jordan wrote the study guide based on the sermon the way it was uh, last night. And, and it's gonna, we're going to um, put the new one up on the, study, on the website, rather, that, that just looks at verse 17. So that's just a little bit of preamble. I hope what you hear in that is Jordan and I have talked and worked together on this. Uh, we take really seriously the call to, to preach the, the word of God to you and, and, and in a way that, that you are able to grasp and understand Here's where we are in verse 17. We're in our third week of listening to Peter unpack what it looks like to live in the grace of God. So the, the, the whole first part of his chapter up to verse 12 was about the grace of God revealed in Jesus. Past grace, present grace, future grace. And, and, and then starting in verse 13, Peter is instructing us on how to live in the light of that grace. Now, two weeks ago, we looked at, at verse 13, which is his first command, which is that being sober-minded and preparing our minds for action, we would set our hope fully on the grace that will be given us when Jesus is revealed from heaven. So, so in other words, the, the future grace of, of, of Jesus' return isn't just a nice thought to have. Rather, it is to be the thing that all of our hope is set on. And, and that inf informs the way that we use our minds and think at, at all times. Because we're going to need to have a, a disciplined mind in order to set our hope. Okay, so that was two weeks ago. Last week, we looked at verses 14 and 15, uh, sorry, 14 up to 16, and we heard that God, who is holy, has called us to be holy in all of our conduct. Holy meaning devoted to God. So everything we do, our whole lives, devoted to God because he is holy. And so today we come to, to what's Peter's third, third command. And we shouldn't be afraid of this word command. Peter's an apostle. He's speaking for Jesus. He can tell us what to do. And that's what he's doing here. And he's giving us now our third command for how to live out and to live in the light of the grace that, that has been revealed in Jesus, that's been given to us in Jesus. And so like we said, verse 17 to 21, it's one sentence. But like we've seen before with some of Peter's big sentences, there's, there's actually quite a bit in here. And so we are going to be looking today at, at, at verses, verse 17. Verse 17 has what's really the key idea, the key command in this whole, in this whole section. But, but, but before we get into it, we just want to notice the first word in verse 17. The little words in the Bible make, make big differences. Little words make big differences. And the little word here is and. And what that's, what that's showing us is that what Peter's introducing here in verse 17 is not something completely brand new. This isn't a new development necessarily. Rather, this is just a continuation of what we've heard. It's connected to what we've heard. Setting our hope fully, living holy lives, and. So it's just, it's all connected. And here is the main command. It's in the second half of the verse, right after the comma. And the command 
is that we would conduct ourselves or conduct yourselves as it's written, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So preparing our minds for action, being sober-minded, setting our hope on Christ's return, being obedient children, fleeing from the passions of our former ignorance, living holy lives in all that we do, all these things we've heard, Peter is connecting it to conducting ourselves with fear. Not just fear once in a while, but a life of fear. Conducting ourselves with fear. That that language that speaks to the the whole way of life that we live. And, and, And we see that this is talking about our whole lives when he says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So, so what, what's the time span that we're supposed to conduct ourselves with fear? It's the time of our exile, which is this whole time that we're here waiting for Jesus to return. So our whole lives waiting for Jesus to return are to be marked by the presence of fear in the way that we act, the way that we behave, our whole way of life. Does that that seem like a strange idea to you? That in light of all of the grace that we heard in, you know, verses 1 to 12, all the amazing things that God has done, is doing, and will do, that our response to that would be fear. Is Is that a strange idea? It's not strange if we look at the whole Bible. Front to back... Scripture is full of passages that command us to fear God, right? That's, that's the implication here. Just, we just want to get that out of the way. What we're fearing here is God, and that's going to be very clear before we go too much further. And, and the Bible over and over and over again, not just Old Testament, but Old and New, tells us to fear God and connects the fear of God to holy living, Deuteronomy 10, 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? Fearing God, and then it's connected to loving him, walking in his ways, serving him. That was Deuteronomy 10, 12. It's a bunch here, just so you know. If you want to get the, all the references, you can write them down as I say them. Or this will be on the on the website later. Job 1.8, And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Proverbs 1.7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Psalm 112.1, Blessed is the man who Fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. Acts 9.31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Just pay attention as we read these, the things that fear is connected to. Fear and delight, fear and comfort, Acts 19.17, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. 
Romans 11.20. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. 2 Corinthians 7.1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Ephesians 5.21. I'm quoting here from the CSB. It's one of the few times where I think it, well, I shouldn't say one of the few times. It does a better job here in the translation. Ephesians 5.21, CSB, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. Philippians 2.12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Colossians 3.22, bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. 1 Timothy 5.20, as for those who persist in sin, it's talking about elders who are sinning, as for those elders who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Hebrews 4.1, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. It's hard to miss the big idea here, right? Fear is an important part of what it means to know God and to walk with him. Fear is really important. And we can't just dumb this down. We can't reduce fear just to respect or just reverence, although there's, a, there's an aspect of that. Or we can't even try, like one recent author tries to redefine fear as a, as a special kind of happiness. It's just sort of the trembling of feeling really joyful. Joy and fear are opposites. They go together, but they're not the same thing. And we know that because some of these passages that we've just read connect fearing God to an awareness of his judgment and, 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 and also showing how it's the opposite of fearing people. So here's a, a passage from Luke. We looked at Matthew's version of this not too far in the past here. Luke 12, 4 to 5. Do not fear those who kill the body. And after that have nothing more they can do. But I war- will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. If that's not talking about being afraid of God, it's not talking about anything. Don't fear people, because they can only kill your body. Fear God, who can cast your soul into hell. Yes, fear him. According to Jesus, there is a sense in which we're supposed to be afraid of God. Now, we can struggle with this. We can struggle with this for a couple of reasons. One, we can struggle with this because it doesn't seem right. And I would suggest that that's not really a great reason to struggle with this. Because what seems right to us doesn't decide what's true. God's word decides what's true. So if God's word says something and doesn't seem right to us, who needs to adjust? There's a second reason we can struggle with this, though, is because how many times does the Bible tell us not to be afraid? We've talked here before. Fear not or do not be afraid is the most common command in the whole Bible. 
And, and the New Testament specifically connects our salvation with a removal of fear. Romans 8.15, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. 1 John 4.18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out all fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So, so on the one hand, we've got commands to fear, and on the other hand, we've got commands not to fear. And, and, and it, this isn't like a, like a problem like we have to go far to find this problem. There's at least a couple of places, and there's probably more, where the command to fear and the command to not fear are like, like really close to each other. Okay, so we, we've read Luke 12, where Jesus says, don't fear man, but fear him who can cast you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. What does he say right after that? Okay, yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. To me, the most striking example is Exodus 20.20. One verse. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. So what is it? Do we fear or do we not fear? Or is there tension here, deliberate tension between fearing and not fearing. And we need to inhabit that tension. Let's just think about that verse in Exodus 20, 20. It's really helpful to understand that a little bit more to, to feel this tension. So in Exodus 20, God has brought his people out of Egypt. He's brought them to Mount Sinai. He's come down on the mountain and it's the top of the mountains and flamed in fire. There's a thunderstorm. God's voice is shaking. There's the sound of trumpets. He's told the people, if you touch the mountain, you're going to die. He's just spoken the Ten Commandments to them. And in Exodus 20, verses 18 and 19, we read this. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. So the people see this awesome display of God's power and, and they're terrified. It feels like God is coming to get them. That God has come down to kill them. And, and so they stand far back. They don't want to hear his voice. They're terrified. And in response to that kind of fear, the fear that God is coming to get you, Moses says, don't fear. Don't be afraid of God in the sense that you want to get away from him. Okay, so the kind of fear that makes you want to run away from God, don't have that kind of fear. God is not out to get you. Don't be afraid to draw near, at least as near as you can. And yet, and yet, 
that display of power and glory and the sound of the trumpet and what looked like a volcano in the thunderstorm was designed to instill another kind of fear in God's people, the fear of sinning against him. Right? There's a reason that when God gave the Ten Commandments to Israel, when God gave the law to Israel, he did it from a smoking, flaming, trumpeting mountain and not in a, val- uh, let's say, a meadow with deer frolicking and butterflies and soft music playing and, you know, like that gift shop music. Like, there's a reason it wasn't that type of environment. God wanted his people to know that he meant business. Now, if they obeyed him, they had nothing to fear. Because all of that power that God was showing them would be used to protect them from their enemies, right? That's kind of, you get into the covenant. Like, if you obey me, you got nothing to worry about. He's going to bless them and keep them safe. So if they draw near to God and obey him, they have nothing to fear. But they should fear what will happen to them if they run away from God, if they rebel against him. They've got a lot to fear. So as I've, as I've struggled with this, as I've, read, as I've read whole books on this topic, and, and I'm sure other people could do this better, but the best way that I can explain this tension of fearing and not fearing the Lord is we are to not fear God in the sense that we want to run away from him. We are to fear God in the sense that we are afraid of what would happen if we ever did run away from him. So we're not to fear him that we want to run away. We are to fear him in the sense that we're afraid of what would happen. Yes, what he would do if we ever did turn away from him. And and I think one of the best human examples of this appropriate fear is the relationship between a child and a good father. A great, by the way, just a great literary example of this is the way that C.S. Lewis portrays the lion Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia stories. Those of you who have read them, you should read them just to see how he captures Aslan and that, that, that perfect balance of fear and delight. But I know not everyone has read those books, although y- you should. They're in our library, by the way. But what, what I want to dr- draw attention to is something that might be a bit more common is the relationship between a child and a good parent, a good father. Even as I say that, I know that not all of you here had good dads. For some of you, it was all fear all the time because you had an abusive father. For some of you, it was no fear none of the time because you had a, a checked out father. But, but I, I know it's, it's at least more common for us to have seen and some of us to have experienced a relationship with a good father. I have some pretty key memories in the first five years of my life that I think capture this really well. By default, I was not afraid of my dad. I loved my dad. Some of the best, some of my, my best memories from the first five years of my life involve him. I mean, dad coming home from work or us going to pick him up, that was like the highlight of my day. I, I, I loved spending time with my dad. And yet... Nothing could make me shake more than these words. I'm going to tell your dad about this. I remember specific times, clear memories where I really pushed the limits. And my mom would say those words. And those hours between then and when dad came home from work were, were not fun. 
And his footsteps on the front walk were not a cheerful sound because I knew he was going to find out what I'd done. I knew he was going to be disappointed in me. I knew that I'd face some form of discipline. And I felt a measure of fear, not because my dad was bad, but because I had been bad. And no human relationship captures this perfectly, but I, th- I think we can say that fear was appropriate. It was appropriate fear of my father that made me not want to disobey him again. And, and I think I'd suggest that father-son relationship, when it's healthy, is a good picture of the kind of fear that we should have of our Heavenly Father that causes us to live holy lives as we wait for Jesus' return. And the reason I say that, the reason I point to this father-son relationship is because that's what Peter points to. So now we're going to go back and start the beginning of verse 17 where Peter starts off with a reason for why we should conduct ourselves with fear while we wait for Jesus to come back. Our fear is rooted in the fatherhood of God. Look at how verse 17 opens up. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Let's let's look at these words a bit at a time. If you call on him as father. What a wonderful phrase. Call on him as father. These words point to prayer. Calling on the Lord is language for prayer in the Bible. And and, and Jesus taught us to call on God as father. That's how he taught us to pray. Our father. This is a totally brand new idea. We talked about that when we looked at the Lord's prayer. No one else had done this before. And, And Jesus, who says, I'm the son of God, teaches us and invites us to to pray to God as our Father. Like we just heard in Romans, the Holy Spirit causes us to cry out, Abba, Father. We don't talk to just this distant deity, but we talk to a Father. And yet He's not just our Father. He is also the impartial judge. And if you call on Him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds? Peter says, our father is also the judge. See, we have, a, we have a, a tendency with some of these truths in the Bible to commit the sin of nothing buttery. That's a phrase I heard years ago, and it's not talking about butter, but it's talking about saying that something is something and nothing but that thing So we do this sometimes. God is our father and nothing but our father. Or for some people, God is our judge and nothing but our judge. And and Peter's showing us that our father is also our judge. And he doesn't play favorites or give his kids special treatment. It's like a human judge whose kid shows up in front of him one day, he's not going to give him a pass just because it's his kid. I mean, when, when politicians do that, they get in trouble in the media, and rightfully so. We call it nepotism, and it's a big thing. And it should be, because righteous judges, righteous lawmakers have the same standard, whether it's their kid or not. And that's what, what Peter's saying here. God doesn't give us a pass just because we're family. Though he is our father, he is going to judge us for what we have done. So here's another strange idea, perhaps. The idea of you, a Christian, being judged by God. Is that a strange idea? 
might be strange because you hopefully know, if you're a Christian, you know this, that Jesus died on the cross to save you from the judgment of God. He did. 1 Thessalonians 5.9, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? We, we sing that in the song. And on the cross, where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. That's, that's, that's what was happening at the cross, was Jesus bearing the judgment of God for our sins. So, so we, when we think of us and the judgment, we think of the cross. We should. And we trust in him. But just think about this. What is the proof that you have trusted in Jesus? What is the fruit of trusting in Jesus? And the answer is that it is a life marked by holiness, which is what we saw last week. Good works that don't make us saved, but prove that we've been saved. And because because good works prove that our salvation is real. Repeatedly, the Bible speaks to us as Christians and speaks about the fact that one day our lives will be judged in the sense of evaluated by God. Matthew 16, 27, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Romans 2, 6, He will render to each one according to his works. 2 Corinthians 5, 9-11, We make it our aim to please him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that... Each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. So those are just a few references. Numbers of times the New Testament warns Christians about not sinning in certain ways because of the judgment of God, even the wrath of God, whether in this life or the life to come. Why should we submit to the government? Romans 13, 5. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Galatians five nineteen to 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why should we be sexually pure? 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-5 For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do, know, do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Similar topic, Hebrews 13, 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. Why? For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. I grew up listening to Keith Green 
one of his most memorable songs is based on Matthew 25, when Jesus judges the sheep and the goats. And at the end of that song, Keith Green says, if you're familiar with Matthew 25, it's the what you did to the least of these brothers you did to me passage. And at the end of it, Keith Green says, and my friends, the only difference between the sheep and the goats, according to this scripture, is what they did, pounds on the piano, and didn't do. what they did and didn't do. And I wonder if some of you are thinking, I think give the gospel. Now you're preaching salvation by works. No, I'm not. There's preaching the Bible. Haven't we been saved by grace through faith? We have. It is by grace. You have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by lest anyone should boast. But, not but, and what is the fruit of grace through faith? The next verse. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So if you want to know whether someone has been saved by grace through faith, what do you look for? You don't ask them, did you pray a prayer when you were younger? You look for good works. That's, that's, just how, that's, that's what these are saying. John Piper once summed it up in a, in a tweet, I think. He said something like this. If you want to know whether someone is alive or not, you don't ask for their birth certificate. You check for a pulse. Okay, so like when the EMTs show up at, a, at an accident site and they're not sure if someone's alive, they don't, uh, can I see your birth No. Do they have a pulse? Are they breathing? So for us, grace through faith is our birth certificate. We were born again by the sheer mercy of God. This is not about being saved by works. This is not about impressing God with works. Grace through faith is our birth certificate. But what is our pulse today? A holy life of good works. And so these verses that talk about God evaluating us, just judging us on our works, you know what that's saying? Is that he's going to check our pulse. He's going to check our pulse. And if we've been born again, if we believed, and the Spirit is alive in us, that's going to result in a holy life of, of good works. I wonder how you respond to this. Maybe good works has seemed like a, like, a, like a nice idea. Like you like it when other people do that for you. Holiness seems like a good idea. But the thought that God is going to evaluate your life someday, that you are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ to receive from him what you, for what you have done in the body, that, that might feel troublesome. That might make you tremble. That might give you fear. And it should, according to Peter. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Because our father who has caused us to be born again is also the impartial judge, we should live our lives in a sense of holy fear while we wait for Jesus to return and and end our exile. 
So this means as we prepare our minds for action, our sober-minded, setting our hope fully on the grace to be brought when Jesus comes back, as we refuse to be conformed to the desires of our former ignorance, as we live holy lives as God is holy, we do this in a sense of holy fear. Being saved does not put us in a spot where we can not care about stuff. It's put us in a spot where we really do need to care about these things. But let's remember here as we conclude that this fear that we've been called to live in is not an oh no kind of fear, like God is coming to get us. This is an oh wow kind of fear. As we stand trembling aware of the mercy that we've been shown by a God this great and powerful. I felt this kind of fear at the edge of the Grand Canyon. I knew that a few wrong steps would send me to my death. But I also was just in awe that I actually got to be there and see and experience this thing. Pictures don't do it, by the way, if you've never been there. And I didn't want to leave. See, fear isn't the same thing as joy, like we said earlier, but, but they're definitely not opposites. They, they go together really well. And for us, we have a fear that comes from knowing who our Father is, but that this Father, this impartial judge, has, in his great mercy, caused us to be born again. He's redeemed us like we're going to hear next week. Next week's all about the redemption, the price that he paid for us, what he redeemed us from. And so we fear God and we tremble in his presence and that affects all that we do. Not in an, oh no, he's coming to get me, but in an, oh wow, you have come for me. Here's my life, Lord. That's why we're ending this morning by singing about our holy God. This is about him. This is about living in the fear of the Lord. And please hear, it is about living in the fear of the Lord. How else are we going to fulfill verse 17? Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. This is not about feeling a little bit of fear once in a while. This is about a lifestyle of holy fear. Holy trembling before a God like this. So in a few moments here, we're going to sing, come and behold him, the one and the only. And this is not a call that right now in these minutes as we sing the song that you would do this. This is a call that this would be something that we do with our lives. That we come again and again and again to behold him. That we might live with a joyful fear before him. Knowing and beholding God is the only way we're going to begin to put these truths into practice. One of the ways that that I put this into practice, that I try, is is a daily prayer. I have it written down that God would help me this new day to live before his face, aware of his presence, walking before him. And, And whatever words you use, I don't know if there's any way for us to put verse 17 into practice without a daily habit of directing our hearts to draw near to God. I I don't know of any other way. 
Sunday is so important, folks. This gathering is so important. This is, this, this is appropriate for this to be our main spiritual meal. That's, we see that in God's word. But if this is it, and you forget about this for the next six days, there's no way you're going to be living with fearful trembling before this holy God. So hear the call of this song and whatever it looks like for you, whether it's something you're doing already or something you need to, you need to every day draw near to God. Walk before him. Know that you're living your life under his watchful eye, a loving watchful eye, but also an impartial eye. So as we sing and then as we pray, let's ask God to help us carry this awe and fear of this holy God into the week that he's planned out for each one of us. Now there's more to say. We're cutting Peter off mid-sentence here. There's so much more. But I think this is enough for now. Let's take a moment to be quiet and then I'll pray for us. God, we thank you that you are our Father. That if there's anyone here who doesn't know you as Father, that even now they can call out on the Lord Jesus Christ who lived and died and rose again to redeem us and they can be free and know you as their Father. But God, we also are sobered as we remember that you are also the impartial, perfectly fair, perfectly just judge. Lord, that makes us tremble, and it should. I pray, Father, that you would help us to stay in this sweet and beautiful tension between fear and fear not. Help us, Lord, not to rush for quick and easy answers that take away this tension. Help us to to live our lives in this place, knowing you as father and judge, knowing we are safe and fearing to ever run away from you. Lord, if there are other places in your word that would help shed light on this tension for those who might still be struggling with it, would you help them, Lord, this week to to find the help that they need. Bring us, Lord, to a place of rest, even in this tension. And God, as we sing here, I pray you'd help us to behold you in your creation, in your word, and I pray you'd help us to keep on beholding you. That this week ahead of us would be a week of beholding and loving and drawing near to and trembling before a holy God. We thank you so much for the joy of knowing you.